Welcome to the Pages of Hackney podcast. It's our absolute pleasure to have Lauren John-Joseph and Barry Pierce here to discuss Lauren's debut novel, At Certain Points We Touch. Lauren John-Joseph was born in Liverpool and lives in London. They write for the page, the stage and the screen. Their film and performance work has been shown internationally, across the UK, US, Europe and Asia. They are the author of the play's Boy in a Dress and A Generous Lover, and the experimental prose volume Everything Must Go. This is their first novel. Barry Pierce is a book critic and culture writer. He writes a book column for The Big Issue, and his reviews have appeared in the Irish Times and the Sunday Times. His wider writings on literature and popular culture have appeared in Dazed, ID and Rolling Stone. Hello. Um, I'm going to read you a quick section. It's about four minutes long. Um, and what can I tell you? Uh, the protagonist, who is called Bibi, uh, is in Mexico City, uh, <laughs> looking back on a love affair with uh, a man who is now dead. That's not a spoiler because he's dead from the first page. Um, yes, and they're in Mexico City. They're outside a pharmacy at four in the morning, as you are, and they realize it's February 29th because in Mexico... Conveniently, pharmacies tell you the time, the date, the temperature on the signs outside. Um, they realize, oh shit, it's his birthday. And they are sort of flung backwards into time into an exploration of who that person was and what that love affair meant. And so this is them reflecting on the letters that they shared with this lover that they'd lost. These letters are the last surviving traces of my willing submission to that strange passion to the euphoric entanglements of the fatally immature, to the ties that bound us. I've reread them all, endlessly, of course, I know them by heart. But though I can practically recite them from memory, sometimes even now they reveal something new when I look at them. They show me a bit more of you, but still not you. You spent time with them, I can feel that. A little while after you were killed, when I was quite literally staggering around in my grief, a friend told me to write a letter to you and mail it without an address. I did that, but even as I listened to it drop into the guts of the postbox, I knew it was nonsense. It didn't feel like a weight off my mind to write everything out and send it off blindly. It only felt like a waste of paper, like a magic trick from a Christmas cracker, like a wellness exercise from a fashion glossy. And yet, I've tried frequently to contact you. I've gone on writing to you, what other reason is there for this book? I know for sure, even as I write it, that this book has possessed me. I felt it just now as I was walking back from lunch at the Fondita, waiting for a break in the traffic so I could dash across the road. I felt it as instantaneously as I had felt it in front of the drugstore's neon cross when this mission settled on my brow. I understood immediately that I am now entirely at the mercy of this story, compelled to write it out, to keep dancing until I fall into a dead faint with the red shoes still on my feet. Maybe then I can rest. This is the only story I can write. Even when I try to scratch out something else, something pleasant, this story expands in the line breaks. In the silences when the keyboard is resting still between thought and image, I hear your voice saying, that's how it is, eh, Bibby? It's not like you were my first love, not at all. I've been fucking my classmates, older men in public toilets and other people's boyfriends since I was 13. 
I'd known my way around nightclubs and bedrooms since my second scholarship year of secondary school, and I had known love's thrills and spills for practically as long. I'd broken up households, I'd lived with boyfriends, and in one sanctimonious set of circumstances had even been engaged, when the idea of gay marriage was little more than a lightning rod for the debate around tolerance and equality. So why then am I left with you? I didn't commemorate any of those other affairs with anything more than a few melodramatic scenes in Pret-a-Manger, a couple of catty remarks and some ill-advised but perfectly enjoyable post-breakup sex. What is this hold you have over me? How can I ever possibly hope that in hammering all of this out at my keyboard, I could speak to you across the great divide, as though my desktop were a Ouija board, and break that hold? I feel sticky and sinister when I think about it. My desires become necrophile. I see you now like Marilyn Monroe found in the nude, the back of her blonde head, her shoulders rising like polished Thassos marble above the crisp white sheets, her bedroom untidy, cluttered and in disarray. Even when you were living, you had me compelled. I think because the nastiness that always existed between us, the barely concealed cruelty, the flared tempers, the irrecoverable, irreconcilable differences made me feel, well, grown up. Before you, I had only known the bitterness to come in at the end of the affair, as a spoilt harvest resulting from negligent or unskilled farming, from irreversible changes to the climate, from infestations of parasites or just plain bad luck. But with you, the unkindness was sown with the seeds out in the fields, intended to with such malicious care that indecorous resentment, red earth hatred, would have to be the crop we reaped. Thank you. Hello. Hi. How are you, my dear? I'm quite all right. Um, irreconcilable? God knows. <laughs> um, Too many syllables. I know. I, l I loved hearing that intro, and it was kind of like a, a laundry list of all the things you've done. And then it's like, and Barry Pierce has written some articles as well. But they're cracking. I'm sure. <laughs> uh, um, I kind of want to... I'm thinking of that intro in which you are a theater maker, playwright, filmmaker, singer, you know, chanteuse. Uh, muse, muse, ingenue, etc. Mm -hmm. mm. um, so why have you done a novel then? It's a completely different form to what you've kind of worked with before. Um, and kind of what were the challenges to switching into prose fiction? I'd actually always wanted to be a novelist. Ever since I was a wee child, I had wanted to be a novelist and it just did not seem possible. Uh, Lord knows I tried. <laughs> I had a novel, um, well, an experimental prose volume uh, with an agency, with a big agency for a long time. And they kept saying, yeah, we really like this. There's something here. But, you know, most people just read on the tube. So you've got to bear <laughs> that in mind. And the book I had written was not to be read on the tube. Mm -hmm. It was probably to be read in a sanatorium <laughs> or something. <laughs> and it was demented. And so, yeah, I just came up with against this kind of opposition for a long time, like, this is great, but what the holy fuck are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Even with this book, people kept saying, yeah, we love it, but is there, a, is there an audience for this? Probably not. So I just, I wanted to write, and I knew to write, to write, you have to write. So I just wrote. 
and I had opportunities to put work on stage. And then because of that, people would cast me in their projects. And then because of that, I would get an opportunity to work with uh, in a cinematic capacity. So I just mm -hmm. took every opportunity, but always kind of had this in mind, actually. Yeah. When I made performance, it was because you could write and then you could get up on stage and it was just you, your voice, your body, and you could do it. And there was so much less to fight against and so many less hoops, so many fewer hoops to jump through. Mm -hmm. Has the idea always been in the form of a novel or were you kind of like, oh, maybe this could be a theater show or something? For something this else? book? Yeah. Um, no, actually, from all of the uh, ideas that I've had over the years, they, the idea usually comes with a form. So mm -hmm. I'm often thinking, oh, yeah, that would be a really great short story or that's really visual. I should put that on screen or I think that would work really well in front of a live audience. Yeah. But with this, it just seemed that it should be a novel. It seemed like I wanted to spend a lot of time with the reader listening to the narrator's voice. Uh, I wanted a sort of depth of engagement and I wanted to do something um, really immersive, I suppose, which I think the novel achieves. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, definitely. It's it's. I really love the novel. I think it's 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 really well done. And th th I always have a bit of apprehension when someone who doesn't come from a novelist background is like, okay, I'm going to write a novel because you very quickly realize that this person is not a novelist in any way. They've just put words on a page and hope for the best. Well, you've not done that. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. You know? <laughs> this is this is prose. This is uh, this is a book that only works as a novel. Mm -hmm. um, so who would you say are some of your kind of inspirations specifically as a novelist? Um, yes, for this book, I read uh, Nocturnes for the King of Naples by um, Edmund White, mm -hmm. and which is where I got this tone from this you writing yeah, in that yeah. form. I read that and immediately thought, that's it. That's That was kind of, that was the key turned in the lock when I read that book. And I picked it up completely by random in uh, just in a bookstore for 50p because I liked the cover. Mm -hmm. um, that was really crucial. Also, um, Olivia Lang's book, Crudo, when I read yeah. that because, you know, she had such a big following for, from writing very different kind of books. And then was just like, guess what? <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, I thought it was so ambitious and bold and, you know, to just throw caution to the wind and write a book and also insist that it not be edited and that it be released in the year it was written. <laughs> and it's also a great book. I really um, like it, yeah. Although there was so much controversy over it. Yes. I, I thought it was really fun. I, I really, when I read that, I was like, that was a moment for me reading that book. I thought, oh, there kind of is a point to yeah. writing books today. Mm -hmm. Because that's also the thing about being a writer. It is kind of cringe. Oh, you're like, yeah. You're like, why would I do this? Being like, a novelist is inherently cringe. So embarrassing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah. And you, because you have to sit there and slog away and you're just like, oh, God, this is garbage. Everyone's going to hate it. Mm -hmm. um, you have to willingly do that to yourself. Um, so when I read that book, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, there's a point. Yeah. to to prose mm -hmm. so that was really exciting um yeah those are the i think they were the big two inspirations for this yeah. book and hugh lemmy actually hugh mm -hmm. hugh lemmy because again he's just such a lunatic um and garth grenwell <laughs> oh yeah of course yeah yeah because yeah, i think garth writes really good sex and mm -hmm. that's not easy so yeah. Well, I felt I felt I had permission. Yeah, well, I'm going to get on that in a little bit about sex in this novel because that's a very important aspect of it. But I want to know um, 
there are some parallels in the story of the novel um with your life mm-hmm. and um i'm going to i'm going to use a, a a hotly detested word um that uh may need to be bleeped out on the podcast <laughs> but is this book auto fiction is it <laughs> is it um <clears throat> i watched ocean vong give a talk about uh on earth were briefly gorgeous and I don't think people have considered that to be autofiction mm-hmm. as explicitly as they have considered some other books. I think it kind of is, and he says, in a way it is. Um, but he was saying, and this really rang true for this book, that he had taken characters he'd known and then done the things with them, like specifically interrogated them in a way that he wasn't brave enough to in his own life. And that's kind of what I did with this book. Mm-hmm. The central um, love triangle is true to life and the death of Thomas James is also true to life. The events didn't happen in that order. In that order. Yeah. And um, there's such a lot of manipulation that goes into writing a novel. Because basically I could have taken the last scene, the last chapter, and written it as a short story. But in order to like really make it hurt, I had to build up to that moment. And that's kind of the, the manipulation of the novel is doing that to hopefully bring the reader to, to so they experience some semblance of what I felt when I lost that friend. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, the rest of it is sort of manipulation, fictionalization and building up towards that moment. Yeah. Did you like On Earth Are Briefly Gorgeous? Um, yes and no. Yeah, I was. It's a bit worthy. Uh, a bit, yeah. <laughs> but I, I I I found I had like no connection with it whatsoever, and also I w- I was discussing it with a friend of mine who's also a book critic, and he was he was just like on heaven we're no was it no on earth are briefly gorgeous and then he was just like in heaven we are permanently minging, <laughs> and I've never been able to kind of get that out of my head so he ruined the entire yes. book for me. Oh God bless. Him. I know, but it's, yeah, I, I, yeah, it's it it was a strange one. I was like, why is he talking about heaven? What's this all about? I, I I think maybe I liked the book more than you did because I spent an awful lot of time what, in nail salons. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about um, the kind of aspect of the book which I was really drawn towards, which was kind of uh, kind of it's like relation to this kind of local area. Really, a lot of it is set in Hackney and Hoxton and and Bethnal Green. Um, there's whole scenes set in. The Joiner's Arms, R.I.P., uh, Bethel Green Working Men's Club. And I kind of want to know, um, did you seek out to kind of immortalize that particular kind of era in that particular part of London? Because that is kind of now a historical moment, as depressing as that is, even though it's only a few years ago. But so many places that you mention. This is my Le Miserable. Yeah. Essentially, I I yeah, yeah, yeah. really done that. Yeah. Um, well, the funny thing is that um, when you write the story of a period of time or certain associations, that story becomes the history in a way. Mm-hmm. So the book does talk about that. Like what you remember and what you put down on paper becomes, even if that's not how it was. Yeah. So that's dangerous territory. Um, but I suppose, do you know Beryl Bainbridge, Bridge, Bainbridge. Yeah, What's her name? Yeah, Beryl Bainbridge. You know who I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's fab. And I watched an interview with her recently. R.I.P. Beryl. Mm-hmm. She's a fab writer. And she says that what 
she used to do to write was she wrote about her life and what she knew and the people she'd met that she'd stored up in her head and thought, what a great, what a great little eccentric you are. And then she would find newspaper headlines and just write a novel with all of these things she'd experienced in her life and attach it to a newspaper headline, like um, sure. a hostage situation or something. And so in a way, I had the opportunity to do that as well, because my headline was the death of Thomas James. Mm -hmm. And then I could go and like, oh, wasn't that a fab party? Or like, wasn't that a weird situation? Yeah. But then I could also extrapolate and say, and what if? Yeah. Know? What if it had gone this way? What if this Yes, happened? exactly. Yeah. It is. Yeah. What do you like when you walk around that kind of area now? It's like, how do you feel? Because in the novel, it's uh, you, you kind of it's almost like a lament. Uh, in some ways, we're kind of like, oh, this is what East London was. Mm -hmm. And now we're just all kind of like in this weird kind of post-modernist version of East London that's kind of a bit dead and doesn't really have a scene anymore. Um, is yeah. it kind of weird to be back? and No, I mean, the places move for sure. But um, mm -hmm. I mean, but that's kind of what you want, isn't it? Do you want to go to the same places, the same parties, the same bars as you did 15 years ago? Some people do. Some people I mean, love that. Yes. I mean, maybe 15 years ago was like really fun. But also, I never really lived in the same place for very long. I moved <coughs> around so much. So every place is kind of new to me. And yeah. mm, no, I mean, I'm just having such a great time now. I'm not really I'm in my in my real waking life. I'm not really lamenting the loss of anything besides maybe, I don't know, the ice caps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a good soul. You know, I spent, <laughs> I dedicate my life to recycling. <laughs> Today at the nail salon, because they, they take cosmetics recycling, I took two bags. You're so good. And I thought I was going to get an extra stamp on my loyalty card. <laughs> and did I fuck? Oh, God. They'll, put, they'll get a <laughs> blue plaque eventually. I'm sure for that. Yes. Um, Can you organize that? <laughs> I'll try. I'll put a word in. <laughs> I want to kind of hear about your kind of life as a performer, kind of like a cabaret <laughs> artist and stuff like that. Because the protagonist of, of the novel is kind of that and they go from kind of nightclub to nightclub they do all these kind of like somewhat kind of crazy sounding acts um is that kind of brought from real life is that kind of is that kind of what you did or uh what is it yeah no i yeah. did a, i did a lot of mad shit yeah. but um, <laughs> i also borrowed a lot of because <clears throat> when you're in that world you get to meet a lot of really nutty people mm -hmm. and then you can kind of borrow so there's a character in this book called Lulu and all yeah. of her acts that she performs are borrowed from my friend Rihanna and Styles. Um, I borrowed all of her acts and I was like, oh, I sent her the book and was like, uh, yeah, this character has all your old acts. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind. Immortalized but, forever. Yeah. But she, yeah. was, she was cool with that. But no, yeah, I had all kinds of wacky stuff mm -hmm. that I used to do um, on stage most of my stuff actually was more text-based. So yeah. I was more in the sort of Karen Finley oh, yeah. um, mode where I would be, you know, I don't know, wearing a diaper and covered in blancmange, but I would be, um, you know, Beautiful. giving a monologue about you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. the end of the ice caps or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, there, there's references uh, to, like, the cockettes and yes. there's references to, like, Penny Arcade and people mm -hmm. like that. Um, are they kind of circles that you were in? Do you, uh, like, because I like the Coquettes are such a legendary kind of oh like yes troupe, such a legendary era and time. Mm. Um, did you have like familiarity with them when you like in the states and stuff like yes, that? Yes, because actually not at the time the book is set, but I did one half of my degree at the University of California Berkeley, and mm. that's just across the uh, bay from 
San Francisco, mm-hmm. the city. Don't call it San Fran. They get really cross. Um, and so, yeah, I met a bunch of them because they used to actually host events at this anarchist bookstore, uh, which Ooh. never sold any books, but sold an awful lot of dope. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, they just have like a movie screening. And they're all in their like 60s and 70s, but really a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah, I did get to meet them. And they were very entertaining and had the most amazing stories about like how they used to design earrings for Tina Turner and stuff like this. And you're like, are you making this up? And then they're like, no, here's a picture. I carried it around with me. This is me and Tina Turner in 1972. Um, yeah, really amazing people. Mm-hmm. And Penny Arcade I knew um, and still know in, in New York. Uh, yeah. And she was something of a mentor, actually, um, because we have... I, we had a lot in common and I just used to hang out in her living room and she'd be like, hey, you want to see something? This is what I was doing in 1988. They think this is all new. It's not new. And then put on a VHS. And then, I love her. oh, it was great. Oh, a real education. Um, let's talk about sex. <laughs> Baby. Right. Et cetera. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Um, the book is... Has a lot of sex in it, and it's all like actually really well done, which is a rarity. Um, I just kind of what is what is the secret to actually writing good sex in a novel that like doesn't just sound like it's from like an anatomical textbook, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to write for the truth of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to also sort of like sit in your own discomfort. Yeah. You have to be like, yeah, okay, I'm writing this. Mm. This could potentially be embarrassing, but <laughs> it's not. Uh, and also like deal with the sensor, you know, your interior sensor. Mm-hmm. You have to be like, I don't care. I'm going to write it. What are you going to do? Yeah, you sort of write as if, write as if no one's watching. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's what I did. Um, and I knew when it, I knew it was working because I would read it back and it felt true. Yeah. And it's it's a it's pretty it's also it's not gratuitous although it's explicit. It's there in a very measured way for specific reasons. And really, I think there's five sex scenes in this book, and each of them is about two pages. So it's maybe ten pages of sex yeah. out of three hundred pages. But people are fucking obsessed. Yeah, um, of course. Uh, with the sex in this book. It's memorable, yeah. you know? It's good, it's memorable, it's fun. I mm-hmm. think it's a very kind of sexy book. Even I think though, it's as a you sexy say, book. It's, it's, there's not much actual physical sex in it. Yeah. But still, it's kind of one of the things I kind of remember so vividly about it. How important is it to the narrative, do you think, that you included them? Because, you know, there'd be there there'd be authors who wouldn't go near it. You know, they'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, it doesn't add to the plot. You know, the kind sure. of puritanism of like a lot of modern day kind of writers directors are like ah, it doesn't inv- it doesn't advance the plot yes. why include it but you very much include it yes and i think it is important because um for for a couple of reasons um the narrator bibby is um just sort of stumbles around fumbles around someone's like why don't you move to new york that could be cool and they're like yeah why not <laughs> and they're like oh, why don't you be a stripper mm, yeah cool why not um, and the only time that this character has any kind of like a sense of self or purpose is having sex. And like they really know what they want when it comes to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's important. But also the relationship between Thomas James, uh, the lover, and um, Bibby, 
when you're reading it, you're like, oh God, this is such a reprehensible person. Like, why are they together? But the sex makes sense of it, I think, mm -hmm. because they have that kind of connection. Um, so without the sex, th there would kind of, the relationship would make no sense. Yeah. So yeah, and also it's a real challenge to write sex and it to be good, actually. Yeah. And so uh, I, I, I do like a challenge. Were some of the first drafts of the sex just like the most... No, it was killer from the start. Oh, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was. All those years of uh, Mills and Boone really came into mainly Barbara Cartland. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, I like, like, come on. How many novels did she write in the end? Is there an actual number? Hundreds. What was she like? Did she do anything? Like, well, apparently she said she took ginseng. There's a great. <laughs> I've started taking ginseng since I saw I this. And if it works for her. Yeah, she said, I take ginseng. It's what they give you at NASA when they send you to the moon. <laughs> so now I take ginseng. You know, I haven't actually read any Barbara Carter. Who has? Yeah, that's also. Yeah, it's like she's like the, mo like the most popular unread author. Also, you don't like. I don't think I've ever come across any of her books in a bookshop either. Mm -hmm. Like what is I'm so confused by My that. My nan had them all. She had bookshelves and bookshelves and bookshelves full and they're all called like The Prince and the Black Pearl. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, you would read like the the blurbs of ten of them and you're like, This is the same story. It's yeah, but that's what she it's just is she must have just been writing the same thing over yes. and over again, just changing the names. Yes. I think Danielle Steele does something similar. Yeah. Like, like she's on like four books a year now or Danielle something. Danielle Steele sounds like a lot more fun because apparently her writing desk uh, is fabricated to look like copies of her novels built this. as a desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She writes at a typewriter and she only eats like fun-sized chocolate bars. And she writes till she falls asleep. And then someone wakes her up, gives her a mini bounty and she gets to it again. I love that. That's the dream. She's like, she's, she's like a gerbil. Yes. You know, that's amazing. I, lo I love reading because I remember Danielle Steele had that, um, like that New Yorker article about her, her like schedule. Mm. Which uh, it's just kind of like, I don't trust any author who's like, and I get up. I think it was like Ann Tyler. It's like, oh, I get up at like six a.m. and I write until eleven. I'm like, oh my god, mm. get a life. You know, it's <laughs> like why? Like, it just sounds like why? Isn't it meant to be like fun? That sounds like yes, it has to be torture. Fun. Yeah. Do, like, do, do you have? Uh, what what was your like process with writing this? Was it very strict? Was it very regimented, or was it just like whenever you had the free time? No, it was kind of strict because I before this book I was still having to do like several different things to like pay the rent. So there were many like I'd have to perform in somebody's play or write for this or whatever. Um, so I was balancing all these projects or tour with a show or whatever. So I had to write it. I had one month when I was in Mexico, actually, is when I first started writing it because I had a month free. And then the ball got rolling and I was like, shit, I need to keep working on this. So then maybe six months later, I got a residency in Norway and wrote for another month. And then I have a friend who lives in Costa Rica because his father is Costa Rican. And he was like, yeah, stay with me. So I went for another month and wrote it in three months, in three months in one month blocks because I just had too much happening and I couldn't legitimately be like, no, I'm going to see what happens. Like an international novel. Yeah. Should have done that little, you know, like the Joycey and kind of like Paris, Dublin, Trieste. <laughs> you know, you should have done that. Um, <coughs> uh, let's see. One second. What's my next question? Don't look behind the curtain. Oh, here we go. Um, I want to talk about the, the your protagonist um, is someone in flux, shall we say. They're, mm -hmm. They... 
talk about feeling male, feeling female, being non-binary. Um, and yet that isn't kind of the central theme of the novel. And the novel isn't about that at all, really. And um, I feel in the hands of another author, that would kind of be the central pillar around which the, the novel is kind of constructed. Um, but and it's just a kind of like a background detail to do with the character. I kind of want to know, first of all, why did you think, oh, I don't need to focus on that, let me just tell my tale. Uh, and also, do you think we're kind of moving into a period of literature, but also kind of like arts in general, where the the like the the transness of the character is very much secondary, you know. You know, it's kind of like okay, we have all the trans tales. Let's move on to like trans people doing different people, uh, different things. You know, having like other dilemmas. I hope so. Um, yeah. Recently, um, well, not recently. I guess six months or so ago, <clears throat> Morgan M. Page, um, my, who I talk about in every event, I I must have given her several subscribers to her Substack <laughs> over the past year. Um, she wrote an essay called After the Gimmick, which was about this book and Schuller von Reinhold's book, Lote. Yeah. And it was like, after the gimmick, like these are books by trans authors, which concern trans characters, but that's not the central thrust of the book. Mm -hmm. um, also, I mean, cis authors don't have to do it. They don't have to talk about their gender and unpack their gender. Yeah. Um, so I don't feel I didn't feel obliged to, but also I feel it's the least interesting aspect of this story. Um, but also I, I feel like it proves a point. Like the there's a lot of sort of squeamishness about oh can we do that with a trans character in a book or on television and film? Won't we have to explain it? But I feel like if people can pick up Lord of the Fucking Rings and be like, yeah, orcs and goblins and fairy queens, then they can understand that maybe someone has an expansive idea of gender, mm -hmm. you know? And people do. I don't know if anyone's been like, God, this is too confusing. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. don't get it. What's going on? And <laughs> if they, then it's clearly not the book for them. And that's yeah. their response. So um, I do hope we're moving into that world. Um, it wasn't not a desperately interesting area for me to explore explicitly maybe because i've explored it in previous works um but also um the it sort of lines up as well with the sort of auto fiction question pedro lemabel spoke about writing in what they called the bastard genre like it's a mixture of biography chronicle novel and this protagonist kind of has like a, a bastard gender to go along with that Do you know what i mean it's kind of like a hybrid and it's one thing then it's another depending on who's looking at it because the characters surrounding the protagonist refer to them sometimes as he, sometimes as she, uh, and also by different names, yeah. different friends and different friend groups. So they're constantly in flux. They have this kind of corrupted gender yeah. as it is kind of like the book itself is in a corrupted genre. So I hope those two things line up. Yeah. I would love a little bit of water if there is some. This is my Barbra Streisand moment. I have one in every event. Someone's phone was ringing in Liverpool, and that was not a pretty scene. And I didn't realize how like unkind I'd been until I saw the video. But <laughs> you do the full like Patty Lapone being like, <laughs> "Stop, stop!" I the refuse orchestra. to read. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Ooh, <laughs> nice big phone. Mm. Stay hydrated. A refreshing libation. I'm going to pour this into the wine. 
The two gentlemen. <laughs> All right, sorry. Um, I remember, I can't remember, we were talking before, and I think you said this book was, what was it? It was like book of the month for, I Oh, take a break. Take a break, there yes. we go. What, how, what happened there? How did that happen? I mean, I think that's <laughs> obvious, Barry, don't you? I know, they are uh, arbiters of taste, obviously. Actually, it was because <clears throat> I think when I had first had a meeting with the publicist at Bloomsbury, mm -hmm. I had said to her, I, would, I really want everyone to read this book. I don't want it to be like in the LGBTQIA plus section only and yeah. then only for that audience. I love that audience. That audience has come with me, but I want to expand yeah. because I think this is a book for a wider audience, and that will hopefully get uh, the wider audience to read other authors from my community. Um, but I did say, I want it to be Book of the Month and take a break. I kind of was a joke. <laughs> and then she she pitched it, God love her, and they were it. really into it. And I had four, you know, 40, 50, 60 something ladies um, saying, in writing their reviews in yeah, take yeah. a break, yeah. uh, saying things like, I loved this book, wouldn't give it to my nan. Um, <laughs> and I was really wow. touched because I was I, the, Isabel Weidner often talks about experimental work and um, trans work saying that it doesn't belong to the people who we think write experimental work or mm -hmm. contemporary fiction and I think that proves it that the four like reader reviews and take a break magazine yeah. they were into it and they got it I love that yeah maybe take a break is kind of like secretly like a, like a really like transgressive Literary I think so. Magazine. Well, they've got a lot you of know? great beauty tips. They sure do. There was one in there which. <laughs> oh yeah, I love that. Yes, break. Take a break of the system. Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they had this uh, great tip about how you can can't afford a fancy bronzer. Just use powdered hot chocolate. <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Yeah, just eat your heart out, Charlotte Tillsbury. Literally. <laughs> oh wow. Um, that's be uh, I'm just trying to imagine what that looks like now. Terrible. Yeah, it looks really bad. Yeah. Um, I feel like we're recording like an episode of um Round the Horn or something for oh Radio God. Four. People <laughs> NPR voices on, so it's all very kind of like wistful and like yeah. like we're doing democracy now. Yeah. Um. I want to talk about, was it? Oh, wait, grief is oh, my yeah. next mm. section. Oh, for God's sake. Okay, let's do it. Grief. Yeah. This book is kind of inspired by real life events, the death of a close friend of yours. Um, did writing it, now during writing it, did you kind of approach catharsis? And did it kind of like help you grieve in any way um yes yeah it absolutely did um i felt like a huge weight was lifted off my shoulders once i'd finally done it because basically since my friend had died i felt the impetus to do this but i kept thinking oh god this is a really tacky thing to do like do you really need to write this book um and i guess i did because once i'd read it written it i felt <clears throat> an awful lot better i felt because you spend so much time writing and editing something like this that I really came to an understanding. It was basically, it was like a very extended therapy session because yeah. I, I got to unpick it. And when you're creating characters based on real people, you can sort of st stand in their place for a while 
and say like, oh yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what was happening here because I was so involved in my own feelings I couldn't see it from any other angle. And then to create characters, you have to be in their shoes. Mm -hmm. So yes, it was very cathartic and very healing. But I also realized that um, it had helped me with more than just his death. It had helped me grieve other things that I hadn't grieved. Like um, my dear old Auntie Marjorie when she died or my nan died or my sister's godson when he died at like 11 from a brain tumor. All of these griefs that, um, you know, you're just in the world being busy like, yeah, that's sad. But I hadn't had the capacity to deal with any of them. So as I wrote this book, I was grieving for so many people that had lost. My friend Brian, who died horribly as well, just writing about grief, got me in touch with all of those griefs. Um, so it was very healing. Um, also, I realized that I had kind of written a book about, not particularly about mortality and grief, but when I was in my teens, my mother's sister um, had an affair with my mother's husband and the husband left for the sister and so that totally destroyed my what had been a very close-knit family mm -hmm. and it was this triangulation of my mother my mother's ex-husband and my auntie and this book is a love triangle yeah. and as once I'd finished writing it, I was like oh that's what I've done I've written a book about a love triangle because that is the love triangle that like kind of uh it bisected my childhood there's a before and after of that love affair and the people involved didn't handle it well like the people in this book don't hand this handle this well yeah. but i hadn't it wasn't at the forefront of my mind when i was writing it but it became very clear after i'd finished it yeah yeah the, it's, it's kind of like that that bit in therapy where you're like going over something and then you're kind of like oh wait that's what that is you know it's like after the fact so it's like oh yeah it's mm -hmm. like that memory is that or this is why I do that action. It was kind of like that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, how, like, has the kind of reaction been uh, amicable among the people who would have known this person? Or have they read it? Or have they been like, I will get around to it eventually? Um, the, the third part of the love triangle, the third point of the love triangle. Mm -hmm. So there's Bibby, Thomas James, and a character called Adam. Yeah. And the character called Adam... Um, is based on a real person too. And I hadn't been in touch with him for a while. Uh, but when I wrote this book, I thought, I'm going to have to be in touch with him now. And so I sent him a copy of the book with a note being like, well, here it is. Um, I really don't mean to hurt you with this book, but mm -hmm. I couldn't but write it. And he read it and liked it. And now we're busy mates again. We hang out all the time. I saw him today. He's great. Um, and I'm, this is, one of the greatest gifts that this book has given me um, is, the, is renewing that friendship. We just did a piece, actually, it's coming out in The Observer in two weeks about our, our, how this book patched up our friendship. So that's been so amazing. Yeah. Um, other people have read it, like um, Rhiannon Styles. I sent it to her because she knew the person in question and she liked it too. Yeah, I don't think there's been anybody who knew the characters or the people the characters are based on who said, nah, fuck you. Like, that's not how I remember it or yeah. you made it up. I think most people are also aware that it is a worth, work of fiction. Yeah. And so I've taken a lot of license with that. Yeah. And the, you do have that really beautiful scene at the end where <clears throat> your, the, the, your protagonist is on the, the bridge at the end of Broadway Market and you have this kind of like reconciliation after the death. I think it's a really powerful, beautifully written scene. Thank you. Um, 
yeah that, that i think that that's kind of like my kind of prevailing memory of it. i just thought that was just really nice thanks you're welcome <laughs> um my questions are done i've run out of questions now so i guess we just have to do a little cabaret number until oh the yes <clears throat> which one do you want to do i don't know i'm do still have, here i do, <laughs> I do have a I do see have, flat i have a fun <laughs> one i like to i like to do this because it puts people in great pressure but I found this amazing line from one of your one-star reviews on Goodreads. Oh, great! Have you been on Goodreads? Of course. You oh, know I always do this, you know? And yep. some authors are kind of like, why don't you do this? I'm kind of like, because it's fun. Yes. This is beautiful. This person oh, gave you one star. <coughs> yes. Um, their name is Reagan. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll skip it because they're, they're, like, they're quite stupid. But <laughs> there is one line which th they basically don't like the way that you like describe things, uh -huh. which uh, that's what prose is. Um, they say they, great umbrage one part describes smelling arse slash ball sweat on others underwear another part describes using a t-shirt to clean up spunk in the same motion you'd use to scoop up guacamole on a, torta a tortilla chip and like for some reason this person thinks that that's a bad thing you know <laughs> maybe they don't like guacamole <laughs> i mean you're not exactly going to sell but i'm just kind of it's, it's so funny i'm kind of like <laughs> what is wrong what, what is wrong with people i don't know what is wrong with people i always i always find it fascinating <clears throat> i was on uh i was scrolling through book talk because uh i'm gonna do a piece on book talk and why it's a very weird strange place and there was this this young woman who made a video um about her like these are the top five worst books that I read in 2022 and one of them was Crime and Punishment <laughs> yes. by Dostoevsky <laughs> I mean it does suck it's really overrated like what <laughs> but I kind of want to know like what is the caliber of books that you are reading that you read Crime and know. Punishment and you were like that was shit <laughs> like isn't that insane it really is I, I mean people are so great I just love people they're out there living their lives I'm just like what's going have you like ha have you found this on have you found this on on TikTok on BookTok? Are the kids talking about that on? on yeah, people tag me in things, and oh it's gosh. always I always leave a little heart and say thanks for reading. Oh, but I don't want to get too involved. You know what I mean? I think I'm Hilton Niles makes this distinction between authors and writers, oh, and yeah. I'm trying to be a writer. And mm -hmm. I think when you become like an author, then then you have to really consider like what do people think of me what should my next book be like blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and that's that's a distraction and for a person who is so easily distracted <laughs> i really don't need that um but i mean also whatever i'm having a great time writing books i'm really enjoying it like sentence by sentence it's yeah. a lot of hard work but recently i realized like this is actually my life mm -hmm. so if i don't enjoy it i should become a yoga instructor but i do enjoy it so i'm going to keep doing it um but no, I haven't actually looked at the Goodreads. But that's actually because every time I read a book that absolutely sucks, yeah. I um, log it on Goodreads. I don't give it any star ratings. But then I see what other people are saying. And yeah. they always are like, this is a flawless novel. Oh, and I'm like, what? It's, it's written. It's flawless. It's, it's somewhat above garbage, but not that <laughs> much above garbage. But people, page after page of five yeah. star reviews. So, um, no, I haven't really got involved. Are you working on another novel? Oh, yes. Can Night you, and day. Can you 
tell me about it, please? Uh, yes, it's set in Berlin. It's about somebody who goes to Berlin ostensibly to write a PhD mm. and then doesn't write that PhD. Um, instead gets involved with somebody who's absolutely naughty. Um, yeah, yeah. Is this your like Isherwood era that you're kind of I think that's gonna be the up the, the very clear comparison. Ooh. And I, I've I've given a couple of nods to Isherwood because I genuinely do. Yeah. Genuinely do enjoy Isherwood. Um and I lived in Berlin for for a while. Um yeah, it's a very different book. Mm-hmm. Um but I think yeah, it's been a lot of fun to write. And I hope that it will be well received. Of course. I'd better be back for the next event. <laughs> yeah. Or else. Fabulous. Thanks for talking to me, Lauren. My pleasure. Oh. Round of applause, please, for Lauren John Joseph. And for Barry Pierce. Oh. Oh. Let's keep Thank it you. going. <laughs> um, and now is the question and answer portion of the evening. So if anybody has any question that they would like answered, let's hear it. Oh. <laughs> Hello, darling. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> Long time listener. Well, well, I think I'll just repeat thank the you. question for the podcast listeners at home. Um, it's about the role of the internet uh, in Lauren's novel. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, because this book is kind of like from the indie sleaze era, um, that this, that's where the action takes place largely. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of use of uh, MySpace. And so the book talks a lot about the internet as um, an archive, I suppose. Um, and how the internet altered people's communications, but not necessarily in the ways you might expect, not that it just made communications quicker. It could, in fact, make communications more intimate because people don't really think deeply about what they're writing in a text in the way that they might in a letter. So it altered intimacy. But there's <clears throat> all of these fascinating little corners of the internet that deal with grief. The internet kind of made grief public in a way that I don't think it had been public for a long time since, uh, you know, big funeral rites went out of style. Um, the internet kind of made grief public and shareable, even with people who didn't necessarily need to be involved. But um, it's also really interesting. You can go on YouTube and find people have uploaded videos like a prayer to St. Sebastian. Um, and then the comments will be full of like St. Sebastian please pray for my brother, he died last week. And so people that now use the internet basically for the same purposes, like technology is constantly adapting to some very basic human needs, sex and grief and communication, I suppose. Um, Also, there's something much more mutable about the internet. People always talk about the internet, like if it goes online, it stays online forever. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't. Like, you know, people upload pictures of you to Facebook, but then they delete their Facebook account. Those pictures are gone. You never save them. Or if you do download them, they're in really low resolution. Did that answer the question? Yes, yes, I thought it. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, in the front. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That really came from the Edmund White novel, actually, because <clears throat> I had spent a long time thinking 
what is the tone of this book? How can I get it across? And then I read that book and thought, this is brilliant and also not overused. So I experimented with that. And I found that what was happening is that as I was reading back, I understood that though the protagonist is writing to you, Thomas James, the reader kind of also receives that as the you being them. So that it makes for this real strong connection between the writer, the narrator and the audience. And also, I really write by ear, which is why I write sentences that are like six sentences, six you know lines long and have 14 clauses in them because there's a kind of musicality. And I like the musicality of, of it, actually. And I think it allowed for a real intimacy. Thank you. I, 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 when I did the audio book, that's when I really thought, okay, yeah, this book works. I mean, it was already <laughs> out in the world by then, so it would have been too bad. Um, but reading it back, spending five days in a recording studio, I was like, okay, yeah, sure, this lands. And um, I also had the world's straightest uh, studio engineer who would often be like, oh, sorry, Lauren, um, can we take it from throbbing hard cock? Thanks, Lauren. <laughs> For like five days. <laughs> Is there also a bit of, uh, is there a bit of Frank O'Hara in there? I reckon. You know, all the you, that's why I, I was like, oh, you, you, yeah. it's very Frank. You and know? isn't there, there's a Frank O'Hara quote as well. Like, the, what? Oh, possibly. Yeah. Yes, um, like, the subway's only fun if you're feeling dirty or something. Oh, is that something? Yes. And that, that cost me $150, him. that quote. <laughs> Worth it. Worth every yeah. penny. R.I.P. Um, Frank. I know. Bow down. Yes. In his prime. <laughs> Literally. Ooh, um, is it a revenge novel? Uh, no, but this is my revenge dress. Um, <laughs> no, it's I. Um, I can understand that where that question comes from, and I worked really hard for it not to come across as like having an axe to grind, because there's a certain amount of anger that went into writing this book. But I really tried to be as fair as I could with these characters, um, and also, I mean, he's dead. So uh, that would be kind of like, I don't know, desecrating a grave. I did read a great story in the Liverpool Echo recently about a woman who was arrested for dancing on her husband's grave, drinking from a bottle of champagne and singing, who's sorry now? <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually, you know, that's my living will. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you don't have enough desecration nowadays. Mm -mm. It's a, it's a lost art. It needs to really be brought back, you know? Oh. Do we have any more questions from the crowd? Oh, at the back. Yeah. Do you think Thomas James would read the book? And if he did, what would he say? He'd, he'd probably say, um, shit, you know? <laughs> I don't know. I, um, the, the character that that Thomas James is based on was not a big reader and was a constant provocateur. Um, it's weird, the people in your life who read the stuff you write and the people who don't. Like, um, my mother-in-law reads everything um, and says things like, well, it's good to be still learning at my age. <laughs> uh, my mother doesn't read a thing. Uh, I'll say like, oh, you know, 
It's it's one of the Observer's top ten books of the year. Like I'm I'm in the paper today. Why don't you go and get it? You live next door to a newsagent, and she says, "Do you reckon I can find it online?" <laughs> so you're, it's always surprising who reads the stuff. I doubt Thomas James would have read it, but maybe would have like listened to the audio book on his bike at double speed, and then listened to the bits pertaining to him. Probably in in with more focus. I've always written about my mother, actually. Um, the the protagonist's mother is kind of based on my mother in this book. Um, but in the plays I've written, she's always been a voice. And in the new book I'm writing, I've kind of borrowed her again. Um, because she's just such a character. She's sort of wonderfully unaware of herself. Um, but she has the most meticulous ear for stories. And so everything she says is just beautifully melodic and somehow very moving. And she's been through an awful lot of terrible things, but somehow came out of it very entertaining, which is exactly what you want, I suppose. And also, luckily, she doesn't read anything ever right, so she's not going to be offended. Um, she once told me the most beautiful story I think I ever heard. <clears throat> and she said, well, when I found out that I was pregnant with you because I was only... Uh, 17 at the time and so I told my mother and my mother was like go over to Margie McQueen at number 52 and ask her say Margie do you have any knitting needles and any patterns so I went over to Margie McQueen and I said Margie my mum said do you have any knitting needles or any patterns and Margie said what do you want them for girl and I said Margie I'm pregnant and she said friggin hell what did your mother say and I said well, she said go over to number 52 and ask Margie McQueen does she have any knitting needles or any patterns and I thought that was the most perfectly formed story that I'd ever heard. Like the character <laughs> development, the humor, the pathos. No, okay, wonderful. Thank you all for coming out here tonight to this fabulous event to celebrate the paperback launch of At Certain Points We Touch by Lauren John Jewison. That's me. In the flesh. <laughs> and uh, there will be signing, I'm presuming, Putting your little signature oh, yeah. there. I brought my favorite pen. Ooh, and you'll get to meet the Lauren John Joseph in the flesh, <laughs> you lucky things. Thank you all for coming. Round of applause for Lauren, please. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Barry. Thanks, Pages. Thank you. If you'd like to buy a copy of At Certain Points We Touch, please head to our website, pagesofhackney.co.uk, where you can buy it for collection from the bookshop or for delivery nationwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please subscribe wherever you find your podcasts for more literary events like this one.